Hey there and welcome to the Biblical Hermeneutics Podcast, where we explore biblical hermeneutics so we can discover how to live biblically for God's glory. Welcome to episode 16 of the Biblical Hermeneutics Podcast, where we're going to be exploring the ideas of biblical objectivity versus subjectivity, and I'll be providing three arguments for biblical objectivity. But before we jump in, I want to invite you to subscribe to the podcast. It helps the podcast greatly and lets you know when new content has been published. I also want to ask that you would share the podcast on your social media accounts. If you go on Facebook or Twitter, you can look up the Biblical Hermeneutics Podcast, and I post updates to those profiles uh, semi-regularly, probably weekly. Uh, I'd love if you would share uh, those uh, pages so that other people can know and learn about the Biblical Hermeneutics Podcast. That would help tremendously. So we want to look at biblical objectivity versus subjectivity, and and we want to look a little bit at what I mean by that. But basically, the argument is: can we can we understand reality objectively? Can I understand the scriptures objectively, or is there something more? Uh, kind of practical understanding of what this means is: we're looking at the ideas of further revelation. Is there revelations or extra biblical revelation? Is God still uh, performing signs, miracles, and wonders. Do we see these things continuing today? The idea of uh, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, the gift of uh, healings. Are those, are those for today or have those ceased? And, uh, another way of looking at this is it's kind of commonly known as the cessationist versus continuationist debate. Cessationism is the idea that these gifts have ceased and continuationist is the idea that these gifts continue into today. So some some of the straw mans I do want to deal with up front uh, from a cessationist perspective, they often get criticized. Uh, questions like, well, why do you even pray for healing? And why do you even pray for God's help if, if, if those things aren't happening today? If there's, no, if there's no healings happening or if there's no further revelation or if there's no fill in the blank, right? And the answer to that is really pretty simple. The, the argument is, is not that God doesn't perform miracles today. The argument is that the gifts given, which we see in the book of Acts, the gifts given, those have ceased. The gifts are no more. The gift of tongues uh, d- does not continue for today. The gifts of prophecy is not for today. Uh, can God heal? Can God perform miracles? Can God do whatever the crud he wants? Absolutely. Do people have those gifts? The, the argument is that those gifts have ceased. And so when we look at uh, uh, revelatory gifts, further revelation, if prophecy is for today, extra biblical communication is for today, uh, then we lose a sense of objectivity while looking at the scriptures. So I, I want to I dive into that. I want to give uh, three arguments for the idea of biblical objectivity, or some might w- would say that I'm arguing for a cessationist position, and, and that's true. Uh, I am arguing for a cessationist position, which I would suggest leads to an idea of biblical objectivity. Right? I can look at the scriptures, I can read them for what they say, and I know that those are true, and I can be objective about that. We get into subjectivity when we start talking about God calling me to do things, and I have no hermeneutic for understanding if God's calling me to do something, or when I have somebody come and prophesy that I'm going to be this great... Uh, this great leader one day, and I'm going to lead a, 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 a group of people into success. You know, I don't, that, that's a very subjective thing. One, because I have no hermeneutic. I have no 
I have no uh, uh, gauge for whether that's true or not. I have no gauge whether you're being authoritative or whether you're a false prophet. or I don't have no gauge for any of those things. And so it, it makes it very subjective. And it's not that I'm uh, arguing for cessationism because I long for objectivity. I'm trying to make the case that we can be objective in our understanding of the scriptures because cessationism is true. You see what I'm saying? So I, I'm, my argument is that I can go to the scriptures, I can make the case for cessationism, and that leads to biblical objectivity. Okay, uh, so that's my that's my argument. So let's let's jump right in. And I think we've talked about some of these passages in previous episodes, um, but I'm going to make three arguments, and I've categorized them like this: uh, textual, uh, chronological, and historical. So the three arguments are textual, chronological and historical. And, and maybe it's better to understand them as biblical evidences for objectivity, not necessarily arguments, but, you know, uh, we can uh, call it what it is, if you will. So first, let's jump into the textual one. And, and there's, there's, there's a lot more arguments. There's more robust uh, writings and things on cessationism and the idea of biblical objectivity. Uh, but these are just three basic, basic arguments. So if you've done any study in the idea of cessationism versus continuationism, You've probably heard these. Uh, you've probably interacted with these arguments, and so uh, this may not be anything new to you, but it's it's worth talking about. So three basic arguments, textual, chronological, historical. First is textual, and we go to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 10 here, and we really could go uh, to the end of 1 Corinthians 13 uh, if we want to, and, and actually it might be worth doing uh, because uh, there's a lot of counter-arguments in verses 11 through 13. So uh, let's look. Let's look. Uh, we'll start with the context. We're talking about uh, the whole point of of thirteen is kind of it's the the love chapter, if you will, right? So it starts out: If I speak uh, with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender right, and I don't have love. And then in, in verse 4, it begins describing what love is. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant, etc., etc. Uh, and, and that ends in verse 7, where it says, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Boom. And then verse 8, we start out with this, love never fails, this, this statement uh, by Paul to the Corinthians. Love never fails. And then he, he contrasts it, and he goes, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now, these uh, uh, there are gifts of. That's actually an implied in the in the translation, right? So, but if prophecy, they will be done away. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be done away. Is is kind of the more literal translation there. Verse nine: For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Okay, so in verse eight, he makes the statement. If prophecy, they will be done away. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be done away. Okay, so these three revelatory concepts. Okay, you've got prophecy, which is uh, uh, the mouthpiece of God, right? We see the Old Testament prophets. They are, God speaks directly to them. They then speak to Israel or the audience, whoever the audience is, is uh, intended to be by the Lord. So you have that prophecy or the foretelling or the speaking for God. Okay, and we see this, of course, in the New Testament as well. All scriptures God breathes, all from the mouth of God. So in some sense, all of the authors of, of the biblical text were all prophets. Okay, so we see this, this idea. Okay, speaking for God. God is communicating and someone else is speaking for them. They're prophesying. 
uh, they will be done away. So prophecy will be done away at some point. If tongues, we see the, kind of the introduction of the gift of tongues in uh, Acts 2 uh, at Pentecost, uh, I would argue that tongues is not some supernatural language, but it's the ability to speak uh, a language one doesn't know. And uh, I think that's pretty clear in Acts 2. But we won't get into the argument of what tongues is. But nonetheless, that gift, if tongues, they will cease. It will stop. Okay. If knowledge, it will be done away. Okay. And so there's this there's this these, these revelatory things. These will be these will cease. They'll be done away with at some point. Now, when that is, we don't know yet. Okay, but we just know he's making the statement. Uh, they will be done away. These things will cease at some point. Okay, so then we get into verse nine. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Okay, so so at the time of Paul's writing, uh, he's obviously uh, acting under apostolic authority. There's prophecies happening at that point, and he's saying. Uh, in verse 9, for we know in part, okay, we don't know everything, We do, it, not everything's been revealed, uh, we prophesy in part, so we're, we're prophesying about things, but that's not completed yet, that's, that's still in part. Verse 10, but, in contrast, when the, and this word here is teleos in the Greek, when the perfect comes, is how the NASB translates it, the partial will be done away, okay, so we're Knowing in part, we're prophesying in part, but at some point when this object or this thing or person comes, these partials will cease. They'll be done away. So now we know prophecy will be done away, tongues will be done away, this uh, knowledge, a complete knowledge will be done away um, whenever um, whenever this perfect comes. So we know it's going to be done away. We don't know when. But now we know when. It's when this object or person comes. The partial will be done away. Those things will be those things will cease. But now, what's the what's the appropriate translation of perfect or teleos in the Greek? Well, there's really four uh, kind of streamlined options. These uh, kind of the range of the semantic range for teleos is perfect, complete, mature, expert. Okay, so we have to decide based on context what should we use. Well, Paul in two other instances in uh, in First Corinthians he utilizes teleos. And those are, I think, accurately translated mature. But that doesn't mean this one needs to be mature. What it means is why does those why are those accurately translated mature as mature? Well, what Paul is doing in the other two instances is he's he's taking uh, uh, he's uh, contrasting uh, immaturity or infancy with teleos. Okay, so uh, you need to be teleos, not immature. Well he's using them as antithetical, right? So you're being immature, but you need to be mature. Well, in this instance, and he does that often in his letters, he writes an antithesis. And so when we get into this, well, what's the antithesis to partial? Perfect, complete, uh, uh, mature, expert. And I would I would suggest it's complete. So, But when the complete comes, the partial will be done away. And now what what is the complete? What does that mean? Well, it's the complete revelation. So because we're talking about in the context of revelatory gifts, when uh, pro- prophecy is going to be done away, this this uh, knowledge will be done away, tongues will be done away. When the teleos comes, those things will be done away. Well, the, I would suggest that the complete is a complete revelation. And I, I would also suggest that we have the complete revelation in the Scriptures. And so I think I, I would suggest that textually what's happened is the complete has come at the at the conclusion of Revelation, and at that point, the the 
revelatory gifts were completed. Those things would cease. Okay. In verse 11, he goes on and he's going to kind of model this. So when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Okay. He's using an illustration to show that these things are in part. And then whenever uh, uh, maturity came in this illustration, the childish things were done away. Uh, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. Okay. He's looking in a mirror. It's in part dimly, but at some point face to face, you actually see uh, uh, you see more clearly. And it's interesting. Sometimes this uh, verse 12 has been used to argue that perfect should be understood as Christ in his second coming because we'll see him face to face. The problem with that is it doesn't fit in the illustration. He's looking in a mirror. So who face to face would he be with? Well, he's face to face with himself. Uh, because he's looking in a mirror, right? What do you see in a mirror? You see yourself. So he knows in part, but at some point he will be fully known, uh, just as I also have been fully known. So I don't think it works. I don't think seeing Jesus face to face in verse 12 fits the illustration. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, the whole point is is that uh, in this chapter is the, is the uh, supremacy of love within those gifts, but he does make the claim, verse 8, 9, and 10, uh, and 11 and 12, that these things will be done away when the complete has come. And I would argue the complete is here. It's been here for, you know, a couple thousand years. Uh, and so, so anyways, there's the argument, the textual argument. There are a couple counter arguments, you know, but it really hinges on uh, what is teleos in verse 10? Is it perfect? Is it complete? How do you under, how do you translate it, first of all? And then how do you make the connection? And I think the scriptures fit best. Uh, because of the the revelatory nature of the scriptures, and so I would suggest that those things uh, are true. So now we'll go to our our next argument is chronological, and this one comes out of Ephesians, Ephesians two twenty, and then four eleven to twelve. Uh, so Ephesians two twenty, of course, Ephesians two is talking about the the uh, unity of the church. Uh, we and so he's he's talking a little bit about the nature of the building of the church. And we'll go to Ephesians two twenty. You want to pull it up. And he makes this statement in verse 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So God's household, uh, uh, you are, these things, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, so he's using this, this household concept. You have So think about a house. How is a house built? Right? You build the foundation, and then you construct the house on top of that foundation. Uh, and he's saying the foundation of this of God's household is the apostles and prophets and Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's like the starting point that that makes sure everything is in line, right? The cornerstone is is the most important and then it's part of that foundation. And what's the rest of the foundation? It's the apostles and prophets. So the foundation is being built and it's verse 20 says having been built. It's in the aorist tense, it's a past action. So this thing th- these things have been done having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing. This is a current, a present thing happening, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So you have the foundation's been laid, the the church is now being built. Okay, So we have this chronological thing. This happened, and now this is happening. So then we we go to, and, and it's important to understand the foundation is, 
the apostles and prophets. So now we go to Ephesians 4. If I can type, I can pull it up on my computer. Uh, verse 11. It says, and now, before we get into it, Ephesians 4, we've now transitioned. The book of Ephesians can be divided right down the middle. The end of chapter 3. It's kind of like Romans. And, and Ephesians 1 through 3, we get kind of these truth claims. And then Ephesians 4 through 6, we get, now what do you do about it? So in the what do you do about it phase, uh, verse 11 of chapter 4 Paul says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, I will say the as is implied. So he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So it's not like uh, these aren't like giftings. Well, I, I, gave, uh, I gave you and gave you the gift of apostleship, right? It's not like that. It's an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher why did he give them, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ? And then verse 13, we see uh, how long that persists until we all attain to the unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Okay, So we see in verse 11 and 12, there's these people in which God has given to the body of Christ. Why? For the equipping of the saints and to the building up of the body of Christ. But we already saw in chapter 2, verse 20, what the apostles and prophets were for. They were foundational. So they built the foundation of this household of God. And then we get into evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and they're instructed to now to equip and build up the saints for the work of service. So the apostles and prophets, their role was foundational. They, were, they laid the foundation. We're not going back and relaying a foundation. That's been laid. Uh, the foundation has been laid. And now uh, we are building the frame and the drywall and the roof and et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea of how to build a house, right? There's a foundation and there's a building. And the building sits on the foundation. Well, the apostles and prophets built the foundation, and now the building is being constructed. The household of God is being constructed. And we do this. This is happening until we attain to the unity of the faith, uh, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on and he's going to talk about some implications of that throughout the remainder of Ephesians 4. And so we see kind of a chronological approach. Uh, we see the Old Testament uh, apostles and prophets. We see the New Testament apostles and prophets. We, or I guess I should say we see the Old Testament prophets. Uh, we see the New Testament apostles and prophets. We see Christ being the cornerstone. These things are foundational. And now we see pastors, teachers, evangelists who are now constructing the building, if you will. Okay, so chronological approach. The next one is a historical approach. And I see this in Hebrews 2, 3 to 4. And some could say uh, that this is also considered a chronological approach. You can make that argument. Uh, but there's a lot more to the historical approach. You can go through passages of when, uh, basically, it's, it's the idea that uh, signs, miracles, and wonders have actually been pretty sparse throughout human history. We see It seems like it happens all the time because it is happening all the time in the Scriptures. But the amount of time that the Scriptures cover is pretty incredible, and so these signs, miracles, and wonders actually aren't uh, as common as we might as we might expect. Uh, but one thing I do want to point out in, in Hebrews two three to four. Okay, so let's let's jump to the book of Hebrews. Um, uh, and this is this passage is actually the reason that I I'm pretty dogmatic that there's no way the apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. But let's jump in. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 of Hebrews. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through the angels, which is the uh, the the uh, Old Testament uh, law, and we see that 
also uh, in let's see, I think it's in, I think it's in Acts, yeah, Acts seven, and in, in Stephen's uh, uh, preaching. So if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he's, he's talking about the supremacy of the of the message that we have. How are we going to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord. Okay, so the the point of bringing this passage up is this: what we're getting into now. So we have this we have this message of salvation given, and it was at the first spoken through the Lord. Okay, so we see kind of this this uh, chronology, if you will, spoken through the Lord. Then it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Okay, so we have these groups. Let's break down the groups. After It was spoken through the Lord. So the Lord spoke first, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Okay, so now we have a group who's heard from the Lord, and then we have a group who uh, who received the message from those who heard from the Lord. So you have the Lord, you have the, I'm going to say, apostles and prophets, and then you have those who aren't apostles and prophets who heard it from them. Okay, so it was confirmed to us by those who heard, a.k.a. people like Paul. Uh, it was confirmed to us, a.k.a. people like uh, me, if I lived back then, because I'm not an apostle or a prophet, uh, confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, who I'm going to suggest again, apostles and prophets, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So we see kind of this historical argument in this in this instance. It's like, well, the Lord spoke then. He spoke to them who then told us what the Lord said. And they were authenticated by signs, miracles, wonders, gifts of the Holy Spirit. They were. Not us, right? And so there's this kind of this grouping here. So there's this historical aspect. And again, this is a, a really a sh- a shallow look at the historical aspect. But I think this passage is particularly intriguing as it looks at, uh, it separates. Not you know not, not everybody had these uh, and, and it happened to them. It had happened to them, past tense. He testified with them. Uh, and so we see it came from the Lord first. Then it went to them, past tense, and then we heard it. Okay, so there's like this kind of this historical chronology, if you will. Um, and then the kind of the, the final argument I just want to bring up, and, and I think uh, it's worth mentioning because it's worth you exploring uh, this idea in, in Revelation. There are a lot of rebuttals to this argument, uh, and they're justified. It's worth, but it's worth, it's worth looking at and just being aware that it exists. Okay, so we, we get to the end of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation. And uh, let's see, where's the, yeah, verse 18. So Revelation 22, 18 and 19, okay? And, and it's right at the end of the book of Revelation, which I would argue, it, well, everyone agrees that it's the last book of the canon, uh, of the biblical canon. And he says this, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Okay, so the argument is this. Uh, now, obviously, I think in, in uh, Revelation, this book in verse 18 is dealing with the book of Revelation, not the whole Bible. 
right? The Bible doesn't even exist at that point, like as a as a as one unit. Okay, uh, so I think he's talking about the the letter, the book of Revelation. But nonetheless, the argument goes like this. Basically, what what is being said is that if you add to the book, then the plagues which are written in the book will be given to you, which the plagues are for unbelievers, are for uh, uh, non-Christ followers, right? Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life. Okay, who gets to partake in the tree of life? Who has eternal life? Believers in Christ do. So he's he's saying, uh, if you add to it, I'm going to add the plagues, and and which are, are designated for for unbelievers, for those who aren't following Christ. If you if you take away, I'm taking away life. I'm taking away your uh, participation in the tree of life, and from the holy city, you don't participate. So basically, it's it can be one could argue it's an argument for the loss of salvation, right? You add or take away, then then you get to lose eternal life. You lose that which uh, which you've been given eternally, which by definition is you can't do that, right? There's it's not eternal if it is taken away. And so uh, there are lots of arguments for the security of the believer in Christ, the idea that that, uh, that life is, in fact, eternal, and you possess it and cannot lose it. Okay, And I, I would hold to that. Some would suggest that's called eternal security. Sure, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think we can, we can make that argument in uh, a, a different podcast. Uh, but nonetheless, my position is that uh, that we are eternally secure in Christ. And so it can be argued that verses 18 and 19 are saying that, well, you can lose. But it can also be argued that it's not possible to add or take away from the prophecy, right? And the only way that that's the case is if there are no prophets, right? Because, or, or see, the rebuttal to that, though, is that, the, well, the Lord just doesn't change what he says. And so anyone who adds or takes away, they're false prophets. Uh, but is the false prophet really actually adding or taking away? Well, you're not actually adding or taking away from the book because God has spoken and it is what it is. And so unless unless we're prophesying a change, then then it's not actually adding or taking away anything. Okay, now it, I could argue against that. I could push back on that. So I understand, but I did want to make it, make it apparent to you. This is also a, a case for objectivity. Uh, I would suggest maybe a weak one. Nonetheless, it exists. It's out there. Pretty common. So anyways, that's all I got for today. I'd love some interaction. I know this is a kind of a subject that will likely get some um, some kickback on. I, I, I appreciate the, the discussion, though. So if you if you have any any uh, desire to discuss, you can go to johnoglesby.org, go to the contact page and shoot me an email. Uh, I'd love to interact with you. Uh, I've had some good discussion with some people who wanted to to have some conversation i am a little bit slower to to respond at the moment just uh kind of a busy time of life so so be patient with me but but i'd love to have the discussion so feel free to reach out at any point um but until next time i guess i'll see you on uh, wednesday at 5 a.m have a blessed and uh, wonderful week thanks for joining